Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In this week's programme, I join author Mark O'Neill to talk about Sir John Prendergast, who headed up Special Branch in Hong Kong at the height of the Cold War, and also was the first director of the Independent Commission Against Corruption, which cleaned up Hong Kong's police force. So now we're speaking about a man called John Vincent Prendergast, and he was in Hong Kong twice. He was the head of the special branch here, 1960 to 1966, and he was the first commander of operations of the ICAC after it was set up. So these were his two contributions to Hong Kong. So let's go back to his birth. He was born on February the 11th, 1912, in Gorey, County Wexford. His father was the head constable of the Royal Irish Constabulary in Gorey and also later clerk of the Petty Sessions. The young man received his early education at a Christian Brothers school and belonged to a very devout Catholic family. His brother became a, a Jesuit priest. Now, the Royal Irish Constabulary was the constabulary of the British government. So when... Ireland moves to Republican rebellion from 1916 onwards, the RIC are absolutely in the front line because they are living in ordinary houses. They are Irish people. They are the easiest target for Republicans to attack, whereas the British Army are living in garrisons, in fortified buildings, and they are not known to the local people. But everybody knew who the RIC people were because they were local people and they'd been living in this house or living uh, with this family, you know, for a long time. So it was an extremely dangerous time for John Prendergast's father because he was the head constable of the RIC in, 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 in that time. So like many RIC families, they left after Irish independence in 1922. And they moved to London, and Prendergast took a degree at London University, and he started work with the Middlesex County Council. The Second World War breaks out in 1939, and he joins up, and he joins the Royal Sussex Regiment, and he serves with distinction with his regiment. And his superiors very soon realise that he has skills in the intelligence field. So during World War II, he is recruited by MI5, and so he starts working on intelligence. So where was he placed? Well, his first posting was to Palestine, which is one of the most dangerous assignments to be given at that time. because. Yeah. But would have been British Palestine at that British, time? Yes, and Britain had the mandate. But after the end of the war, of course, the... Jews and the Arabs are fighting for control of Palestine and the British are in the middle. So the British army, the British officials are stuck in the middle between these two sides and they are often the target of both. So it was an extremely dangerous time to be a British police official and also an intelligence official. And of course in the end the British government give up. They cannot control Palestine anymore so they give the problem to the United Nations and then the United Nations comes up with its partition plan and the Jewish side accepts it and the Arab side does not accept it. And then we have the first Arab-Israeli war following the partition plan. So then Prendergast joined the Colonial Police Service and he's sent to the Gold Coast. So this is Ghana in West Africa and he's the head of the special branch. 
His next posting was to Kenya during the Mau Mau uprising. So this was a very dangerous period too because the, the Mau Mau attacked British landowners. So they would attack a British family that owned a large piece of land. They would burn the house down. They would kill the landowner and his family. And, of course, for the colonial government, it was very difficult to to control this because the area is very large. The people lived far away from each other. So he was working there, and his greatest achievement was to capture the military commander of the Mau Mau rebellion. So this man was called Dedan Kimathi. So after he was captured, he was tried and found guilty, and he was executed in February 1957. He was aged 36. So then Prendergast is sent to, to Cyprus. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it? You know how he goes round. It's it's sort of really the uh, sort of the last gasp of the British Empire. A lot of what he, a lot of the places he's actually at. well, yeah, and he's sent to the most dangerous places yeah, because. Yeah. What's going on in Cyprus now is we have EOKA, which is a paramilitary organization. I mean, it's very much similar like the IRA. And their objective is to get the British to leave and for Cyprus to be unified with Greece. That's their objective. So, again, Prendergast is in the most dangerous place. And his job is to try to track EOKA, find out what operations they're planning, try to preempt the operations, try to capture their key op operators. So he would have been uh, presumably hiring local operatives uh, in terms of language in these various places. Oh, oh yes. And, and uh, I mean, th these are very tricky decisions. Who do you trust? Who do you don't trust? Well, it's like in Afghanistan today. I mean, who, who's on your side? Who's not on your side? And you're trying to maintain a, a normal society. You don't want to shut everything down. You know, you don't, you don't want to close everything. Yeah, these are very tricky decisions. I'm talking with Mark O'Neill, author and China analyst about the life of John Prendergast, who was born in Ireland, but uh, in Hong Kong, he would be both the head of Special Branch between 1960 and 1966, and later would return to head up the new Independent Commission Against Corruption, or ICAC, which we'll hear about shortly. Now, John Prendergast, he came from a devout Catholic family. He was also the son of a senior police officer in, in Ireland. So that was part of, you know, part of his makeup, really. But what do we learn about him as a personality? Well, he was a very devout Catholic right till the end. I mean, he went to, to Mass every Sunday, wherever he was in the world. So I think we take from this, he was very extremely disciplined, very dedicated to what he did. As we can see, his, his work was the same. I mean, once he joins MI5 in World War II, the job he does is the same until his retirement. So wherever he is. Yes. So I think the, the image we have is a very single-minded, dedicated person you know, very much focused on what he's doing. Being intelligent is difficult, dangerous, and very unstable. I mean, you, you don't know what's going to happen. Is he single? No, no, he, he's, he's married. And I think we can also say he, he loved what he did. So did he take his wife with him? Yes. Yeah. So because he, he kept on doing it. So another person would have uh, done this for uh, two or three postings and then left and done something else. But he carried on doing the same thing. So in 1960, he comes to Hong Kong and he's made director of the special branch. Now, at that time, 
China, as you know, is closed to the outside world. But China is always one of the world's most important countries. So the only listening post for China then was Hong Kong. So Hong Kong would have been one of the spying centers of the world. So there would be Kuomintang spies here. There would be Chinese communist spies here. There were British spies here. There would be American spies here. There would be Soviet spies here, except they, they couldn't. I mean, the Soviets weren't allowed here legally. So presumably the Soviets would have hired other people to work for them. Because everybody wants to know what's, what's going on in China, what's going on in Taiwan, what's going on with Chairman Mao. It's the period of the, the um, Great Leap Forward, the period of the Great Famine. The Cultural Revolution begins in 1966. I mean, these tumultuous events are going on in China. Now, we know about them a lot now, but we didn't at the time. So information would come out very slowly and dramatically. For example, uh, Lin Biao, the flight of Lin Biao from Beijing. I mean, he was the number two person to Chairman Mao. And one day he takes a plane... It flies toward the Soviet Union and it's shot down over Mongolia. Now, we know nothing about this. And then one day, a man arrives in the office of the editor of Mingbao newspaper. And he says, I want to speak to the editor. The editor says, sit down, shuts the door. And then he tells him the whole story. And the, the editor cannot believe it because Lin Biao is the number two to Mao. I mean, he's the successor of Mao. And how could it be that this man... He's gone on, gone on a plane, tried to escape the Soviet Union, been shot down. And there's no way that the editor can verify this. He doesn't have any reporter in Beijing or in Moscow or can go to the scene. Or, I mean, all he has is the man talking to him. But the editor has an instinct. I mean, he believes the man. And the things the man said about Lin Biao and about the situation in Beijing correspond with what he knows. So he runs with the story. So they have a world scoop. So that's the atmosphere in Hong Kong at that time. So Prendergast, again, has a very key role. I mean, he's like M to, to, <laughs> to James Bond. You know, he's, he's monitoring all this. You know that's not true, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> he's monitoring all this. And remember, the potential for violence here is very high, be it between... Uh, communist agents, nationalist agents, American agents, Soviet agents, British agents. They could mobilize groups of people in Hong Kong for, for particular purposes to attack other groups. And Prendergast has to be on top of all this. So is he listening to everybody? Oh, yes, surely. Sure, that's his job. And his job is to try to maintain Hong Kong as a prosperous business, uh, financial centre, a major port. I mean, keep life as normal, working. Yeah, stability. Stability, whilst all the time watching these developments. For example, um, Chiang Kai-shek wanted to invade mainland China and, and become the president again. In the 60s? Yes. I mean, that was his stated aim. So, is this going to happen? When's it going to happen? What circumstances? If it happened, would he succeed? I mean, Prendergast has to have an opinion about all this because such a thing might happen. And this might have been leaked by one of the Kuomintang agents here. These kind of special branch papers, do they ever become available? You know, like these, you know, you have these 30-year rules and things. It would be interesting to see what was being thought in the 60s because I always find it fascinating that what different people's views were on whether the communists would come south. Yeah, because, of course, this, this becomes an issue during the, the Cultural Revolution after 1966, 67. And we have the riots here, we have Red Guards here. 
the imperialists must go home. There were attacks on many facilities here. So many people then uh, interpret this as the first step towards taking back uh, Hong Kong. So by then, Prendergast would have left, but his successor would certainly have been called in by the governor and asked, does this mean we're going to have to leave? Is the PLA going to arrive in Hong Kong next week? And the, the head of Special Branch would have to give an answer. His material would not probably be not enough to give a, a really correct answer, but whatever evidence he has, he has to present it to the governor. So, yeah, so those are the kind of questions which Prendergast would have had to grapple with during that six-year period. And as I say, we, we knew almost nothing about China at that time, so it would have been a very tricky job he had. What sort of bugging technology would he have had in the 1960s? I think it was quite primitive. I think it was very much person-based. So I imagine waitresses in, in restaurants, staff in hotels find a reason to go into this room. We, you know, we suspect a meeting is going on there. We want to know who's at the meeting. So have boiled water and tea and open the door. Say you're delivering the, the, the thermos flask with the hot water or say you're delivering tea and then you tell us who's in the room. I, I imagine it was very much human, human based. I mean, I remember when I went to Beijing for the first time in 1980, I met a Scottish lady and she was having a love affair with a, an artist. And I said, how difficult is it, is it to have an affair with a Chinese artist? She said, it's very difficult because the, the doors have no locks on them. And she lived in the Beijing Hotel. So you had to put a heavy chair against you. So, so uh, the door was always, uh, well, it was closed, but it wasn't locked. Mm. So she said the staff could and did come in at any time. <laughs> and would say, are you warm enough? Do you need another blanket? Do you have enough tea? And when she said, please, could we have a lock on the door? And they said, well, why? In socialist China, we have no crime. Mm. In your countries, your countries are full of crime and criminals and oppression. And privacy. So you need locks everywhere. <laughs> but here in socialist China, we have no crime and we have no poverty. So we have no need of the locks. <laughs> So, so I think the locks in the hotels in Hong Kong, probably the doors probably did have locks on them. But I would say Prendergast would give the, the, his agents the, the keys so they would be able to, 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 to go in. So I think the equipment was very primitive compared to what is available now. You've been writing about the Irish community. How did you come across Prendergast? Well, I must give a lot of credit to the, the excellent Consul General, David Costello, because he has done enormous work and he unearthed dozens of Irish people in Hong Kong's history that I was not aware of. I was aware of the famous ones mm. like Pope Hennessy and the governors and some very distinguished judges, the commissioners of police, you know, who are very well known. But uh, David has done enormous research and uh, discovered many people in all kinds, of, all walks of life. So our original, very slender volume <laughs> grew to about 350 pages. For me, it's much more interesting to hear about the lesser well-known uh, Irish people in Hong Kong than, uh, you know, always the famous ones, as you say, because they're, they're new. And um, for me, somebody who led Special Branch has a, holds a, a fascination because often they're, well, they're often going to be private people. They're not going to necessarily be writing their personal diaries always. So, so there's a, a secrecy about them. Now, he actually leaves Hong Kong, but will return later. So in 1966, he retires 
with the rank of Deputy Commissioner. But he doesn't really retire because, uh, if you may remember, Britain had a colony, Aden, and it's now Yemen, and that was also an (laughs) emergency. So Prendergast is sent there as, as the head of intelligence. Then he finally goes to Malta, and that looks like real retirement. I mean, nothing's going on in Malta. He's going to be so bored in retirement. He's very, very bored. So then we have the foundation of the ICAC in Hong Kong. I think he's very easily persuaded to come here and be the first director of operations of him. Yeah, so that's the Independent Commission Against Corruption, uh, which is formally established in February 1974. So, yes, tell me a little bit more about so Prendergast's involvement and why the ICAC is set up at that time. Well, I'm sure our um, older listeners know much more about this than me, but the Hong Kong police at that time was called the best police that money can buy. So Hong Kong society was extremely corrupt. The police was the most corrupt. But uh, if you wanted a place in school, if you wanted to get a public housing unit, if you wanted any favour from the government, you had to pay a red packet. I hear even in, in the hospitals... If your grandmother was in a hospital bed and you wanted her to have a glass of water or a bedpan, you had to pay the armour looking after her to provide it. If there was a fire in your building and you called a fire brigade, you had to assure them there would be a red packet for them when, when they arrived. And if not? They wouldn't come. Now, the ICAC website explains this by saying that Hong Kong grew too quickly. You know, the the huge rush of population after 49, and suddenly the city expands extremely rapidly. Thousands of new housing units are built, new schools are built, new factories are set up. And the government is able to provide the basic facilities for this, but she can't keep up with all the things that are going on. So the system can't keep pace. So the people who provide services to the public, they can exploit this with money. So there was intense public anger about this corruption, especially in the police force. And then this anger is crystallised when a British expat police superintendent called Peter Godber, he's being investigated for having 4.3 million Hong Kong dollars in bank accounts in six different countries. And this is about six times more than what he'd earned during his 21 years in the police force. So he's already being investigated by the anti-corruption unit of the police about this. But because he's very high up in the police, he can get a permit from the Civil Aviation Department. He goes to the airport, he bypasses immigration and the passport checks, and he, he gets on a plane and he arrives in London. So this is reported by the papers. And there's an intense public outcry because, of course, the Chinese residents of Hong Kong think that the British government are giving a favour to one of their own. It's worse for an expat policeman to leave with this huge amount of money. So the outcry is so great that the then governor, Samari Maklahos, has to commission a report to find out how it is Godber escaped and then how are we going to deal with the problem of corruption. So the governor decides uh, that there has to be a new institution separate from the police to deal with corruption. It's so serious because if we just make it an anti-corruption department within the police, of which there already was, they cannot operate successfully because they're contaminated by 
their links with other parts of the police. So he announces this in October 1973, and the ICAC comes into existence in February 1974. And, of course, this is a very controversial step because you're going to have two law enforcement bodies in the same place often working against each other. Mm. And, of course, all the expertise of how to fight corruption is within the police force. And it's also interesting, you know, I mean, he would have been well known to many of them from his six years in Special Branch, surely. Yes. So the, the point about Prendergast is that you've got to find people to work in this ICAC who are competent, skilled, but not compromised by all their relationships with other people in the police force. So I think that's why they chose Prendergast, because he'd been in Hong Kong before, he'd been here for six years, he knew the city, but he wasn't in the same golf club, in the same soccer club, went to the same bars as other senior policemen. So he was knowledgeable and competent, but he was not a part of the same networks. And he was given this very critical job of the chief operating officer. So Sir Jack Cato was made the head of the ICAC, so he'd be the political chief. But the man that actually ran it decided what cases to go for, which corrupt policemen and corrupt other officials to go after. How do we go after them? How do we collect the evidence? It's, it's Prendergast who decided that. And it was especially important at the beginning because I imagine many people in Hong Kong were suspicious. They thought this won't work and you know, it'll be compromised. It'll be the relations with the police will be too close because the staff initially nearly all came from the police. So they, they would be former policemen and they moved to the ICAC, but, you know, their friends and their yes, former yes. colleagues would be in the police. No, very difficult. So you've got to find a leader who is able to, to lead the cases, direct the investigations, ensure that these links do not compromise the investigations. It must have been rather difficult to um, also uh, convince informants that they were safe. Yes, and also, of course, many of the witnesses in these cases would be people from the underworld, criminals, members of gangs, because they're the ones who would have engaged with the police and, and received money or given money. And, and uh, of course, their testimony could be challenged. So from all aspects, it's, it's a very difficult job, especially in the beginning. So in the first year, the ICAC has operational staff of 255 and they secure 70 convictions, which is a good rate in the first year. Prendergast hires other uh, officers from, from the UK so people with expertise in the field, but no, not, of course, the local knowledge. But he thinks they're necessary to balance the ICAC. And I remember, you know, when I was here in the 70s, I knew a few people in the ICAC, and most of them were, were former policemen. So I said to them, how is it in the ICAC? And they said, <laughs> my pay is better because they had to offer more pay to make it attractive. But all my former friends in the police won't talk to me. And as soon as I give my card to anyone, I never hear from them again. So if he goes to a cocktail party or goes to a <laughs> dance party or social event, you know, they exchange cards at the beginning and they see, they see yeah. from the ICAC. I see, I see. Yeah. <laughs> so they never call him because they're afraid. I think we can measure the success by the fact that in October 1977, we have a police mutiny. 
I think that's the best <laughs> evidence that we have of how successful the ICAC is. I mean, there were some very spectacular cases. There was a, a sergeant, detective sergeant, and his name was $500 million detective sergeant. So he was only a sergeant, but he had a large uh, property portfolio and he rented many apartments out to, to civil servants, sort of insurance policy. So it's a whole network. A whole network, yes. And the police officers were choosing to retire early. Some of them didn't retire, but just moved to Taiwan, took their money with them because yeah. the, the, the ICC could not touch them there. So the mutiny happens on 28th October 1977. So we have 3,000 officers march to the office of the police commissioner, who's also Irish, actually, Brian Slevin, and they present a petition criticising the methods of ICAC, especially the use of convicted criminals as witnesses. And the atmosphere is so toxic that 40 members of this 3,000, they then go to the ICAC headquarters in Hutchison House and they attack the office. So they rip down the plaque, they smash it up and they attack the officers. So six of them have to go to hospital. So Governor Murray McLehose now is really with a dilemma. The police are going on strike because they won't accept the ICAC. So what do you do, Mr. the governor? Now, your option is, of course, the military. You've got the British garrison here. So you can ask them to patrol Hennessy Road and Nathan Road and Boundary Road. I mean, the, the army is available and, and, and can do this. But of course, how does it look? You know, Britain has lost the ability to control its own police force in Hong Kong, and it has to use soldiers to do it. And of course, the soldiers do not understand the city, the, the traffic, you know, the, the details of how the city runs. So, MacLehose has to make a decision. How do I get the police back on the streets again? So, the, the idea is we have a partial amnesty. So, the head of ICAC, Sir Jack Cater, he absolutely opposes an amnesty because he said that then destroys the whole rationale of ICAC if we have an amnesty. But on balance, MacLehose decides it's necessary to win the police back, to get them back working. He has to offer them a partial amnesty. So cases committed before 1st of January 1977 will not be investigated, except for the very serious ones. So this means that 83 investigations of corruption before January the 1st, 1977 are closed. So that was the loss to ICAC of the amnesty. So the police accepted that and the police came back on the streets and the city resumed its normal operations. So that would be in the final year of Prendergast's term. What an extraordinary career he had. Yes. Now, I, I mean, he was here for four years, so he left in the next year. Mm. So I, I'm afraid I can't tell you whether it was the mutiny and the amnesty was a key factor in his decision to leave. I'm not sure. I mean, maybe four years was all he planned for, and he, he was already late in his life. Well, actually, I mean, the addendum to that is that, uh, of course, Godber is sent back. Peter Godber was sent back. Yes, I mean, he thought that by going to the UK, he could not be extradited. He was arrested in the UK, he was sent back to Hong Kong, he was tried, six and a half day trial, and yeah, he was sentenced to four years in prison. And this was a very important event, 
because it convinced the public that even an expat senior policeman was not above the law, even one who'd escaped. Now, back on Sir John Prendergast. So does he go off and write his memoirs? Unfortunately, I think that's what you can't do if you're head, head of special branch and in intelligence. No, I'm... Of course, it would be an amazing story, but... So he retires to England. He likes reading and he likes horse racing. So he, he lives for a further 16 years. He dies in September 1993. And he's buried in St Mary's Catholic Cemetery in Kensal Green in, in London. So that's Sir John Prendergast, who was head of Special Branch here between 1960 and 1966. And then he was a director of operations for the new Independent Commission Against Corruption. So thank you very much, Mark. That's been uh, really interesting to hear about Sir John Prendergast. Can I just end with a a quote from James Joyce? Off you go. He was asked why Irish people get so many Nobel Prizes, and he said, we only have the words. (laughs) My thanks to Mark O'Neill. Thanks for listening, and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.